Well, good morning. What a chatty little group over here this morning. That's great. Good morning. My name is Brandon Barnes. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, on the elder team here at the chapel. And we are in our final week of series titled Good Sex, a biblical look at delight, desire, and design. And I, I got to think there's a lot of you that each week have kind of been white knuckling this series a little bit, maybe a, a little on pins and needles. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in some of your homes during these conversations. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and I think the reason it's tough is because we are talking about the mo most intimate parts of our lives. And so what we've been doing, uh, and hopefully you've seen this, is we've been trying to show how the Bible esteems the body, how the Bible holds the body high, how the Bible demonstrates that we are flawed masterpieces looking to be put back together. We're most authentically ourselves when we receive Jesus into our lives. We've been using these uh, a couple of images over the past four weeks to kind of contrast two opposing views when it comes to our bodies. One view says that you can pull your biology apart from your personhood, your sense of, sense of uh, morals and identity, and then in doing this, you're freed to use your biology in whatever way you decide based on your desires and based on what you feel is most authentic to yourself. And this is called the two-story worldview. And then we've put this other image up to demonstrate the biblical view of, of, uh, of our, our bodies, which holds that God created your biology and your sense of self to work together, that we're embodied souls, that your biology actually holds signposts uh, that inform deeply who we are that you can't trivialize or demean one in pursuit of the other. And we explored this uh, in the past four weeks in a few categories, such as uh, we looked at how this affects um, uh, topics like abortion, hookup culture, pornography, homosexuality, and transgenderism. So if you're first time tuning in or this is your first Sunday, I ask you to go back and, and take a look at those other sermons that are posted out on YouTube. But really, if I was to boil it all down the past four weeks, what we're really talking about is a body divided from itself and what happens to us when we do that. And, and the way I like to think of it is, is when we get to the Bible, the Bible will say, basically the Bible challenges us to see that God puts together and we pull apart. God puts us together, but we pull apart. And so we're trying to demonstrate through this study is, what, is that while the biblical view of the body and soul is increasingly ignored in our culture, it's not because it's untrue, it's not because it doesn't point to goodness, it's not because it doesn't point to wholeness and flourishing. If we're honest, it's because the Bible makes certain demands of our desires. The Bible makes demands of our desires. And when we follow God's plan for sexuality, it's actually shown to be rational. It's shown to be loving, it's shown to be holistic, it's shown to be fruitful. And so this morning, we're going to turn to week five, and we're going to look at the topic of marriage. And at first, when I was assigned this, I thought, oh, I got the easy one. Um, but the more I started to dig into it, I think this is probably the area where the church, capital C Church, has really failed to live out the way that demonstrates oneness with Jesus through this image and through this picture of marriage. And believe it or not, the same duality of person, that two-story model we just put up actually applies to the way that we look at our relationships in our culture. Relationships in our culture tend to emphasize things like feelings, romantic love, levels of happiness. 
The elements of marriage that are, that are intended to form deep bonds, covenant, commitment, child rearing, all for the common good of our society are actually exchanged for individuals asserting their individual rights based on their desires, emotions, and feelings. If the marriage or relationship's making me happy, then it's worth my time or investment. If it's not, it's not worth my time or investment. And so our outline this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at marriage this way. First, we're going to look at what does God's word teach about marriage? What's this provision God has made? What was intended to be? We're going to ask ourselves, why are humans afraid to commit like this? We're going to ask ourselves, what's the foundation we need to build on? And then we're going to ask, we're going to use a couple of illustrations to see how we can actually trust in that foundation. We're going to start with uh, looking at Genesis chapter 2. Before I do that, let me just uh, pray. Heavenly Father, just ask that you would be present in this. Lord, I just uh, I need your help, Lord. I know that uh, as I speak through this, there are people here this morning that are wrestling through their own relationships, their own marriages. They're struggling with this. They come from all different backgrounds, Lord. I just pray that what would come through this morning is truth, but truth in love. And just... Uh, praise you that we have this time together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, 19 through 24. Follow along if you'd like. Now the, bird, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. As part of GBC curriculum for premarital counsel, we actually use this as an anchor passage as the foundation. And there's a blueprint that the curriculum kind of walks you through. The blueprint of what we see here, this provision God has given goes like this in this passage. We see first off that man is alone. There's no suitable helper. He recognizes his need. He, look, he doesn't look like the animals around him, although he's seeing male and female animals. He's not looking like them, right? God provides for this need. God provides from the man, from the man's side specifically. Man then receives this provision from God. He says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It's a way to, he's basically saying, we are complementary to each other. God has made this provision and we receive each other. Man and woman are commanded to leave father and mother and they're commanded to start something new. They are then told to cleave to one another, to depend on one another, to cling to one another, to join, and they become one flesh, meaning they're not to come into this thing half-hearted. They're not to be one foot in, one foot out. They are committing to the union fully. 
Then they experience intimacy and oneness because of the way God has biologically designed them. It lends towards their bonding and towards their oneness. And then you go back to Genesis 1.28 and they're called to fruitfully multiply. So this is the model of which God intended to bring humanity into the world. This is the foundation, the strength, the foundation that is needed in order to release something new into the world. This is God's design. Marriage then is defined by God and his goodness, creating to fill a need. Something both of them lacked was filled or met in the other. It's a fascinating thing. God provides and they receive each other. And God does that. If you look at the early Genesis account, you see that God creates in binaries. He takes two different things. He takes... Um, light and dark. He takes land and sea. He takes earth and sky and then man and woman. Moses reminds God's people at the marvel of a God who would not only bring this level of togetherness, but then dwell, but be near. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 8. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? Paul reminds the church that God uh, is coming near, that God has drawn near through Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, afar, once uh, far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Man is commanded to receive from God what has been provisioned for our good because God joins together, but more than that, he draws near to us. The great tragedy comes just a chapter later in chapter three in Genesis when, men and, when the man and the woman distrust the goodness of God's provision. They chose to believe they could decipher what's good on their own. And then I just want you to see this sort of at a high level, fundamentally what's happening. Genesis 3, 8 through 10, the man and the woman, they've sinned. And now the man and the woman and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God and something has changed. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God, look at this part, called to the man. Man is hiding, God is calling. And we see that in our culture. Man is running, man is trying to hide from God, but God pursues and God calls. Man is hiding, God is calling. Numbers 23, nine, from the rocky peaks, I see them from the heights, I view them. I see a people who live apart. Ephesians 2.12, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of that promise without hope and without God in the world. We pull apart, God puts together. How do we see this in our culture? Why are humans so afraid to commit? Over the past 70 years, we have shifted from a country where households were 80% comprised of marriages down to about 49% of American households are married. In the past, that's, that's really been, um, over the past five years, a, a big shift. Why are fewer people getting married? Why are more people dipping their toes in the water of cohabitation? Why are more people gravitating towards things like open marriages? In his book, Modern Romance, comedian Aziz Ansari, better known as Tom Hatherford, to any of you Parks and Recreation fans, he wrote a book and he says the difficulty in today's generation is too many choices. He says older generations, and this is true, tended to meet within like a couple of square blocks of their homes and they would marry that way. He said today with online dating apps, you have what he kind of terms analysis paralysis. 
He used the analogy of being in a hallway with doors to choose, and behind a door could be that potential mate. He says this, quote, emerging adulthood phase of life is basically a pass society gives you to hang out in the hallway and figure out which door is really right for you. Being in the hallway with a million doors poses a significant fear, and for many people, it's terrifying. And then he says, we have a whole new romantic culture based on an epic search for just the right person. Marriage psychologist Esther Perel says it well in the same vein. She says um, she's discussing the intense pressure that occurs when one of those million doors is then opened. Marriage, she says, was historically an economic institution in which you were given a partner for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. Now we want our partner to give us these things, but in addition, we want a best friend. We want a trusted confidant. We want a passionate lover. She says, give me belonging, identity, give me continuity, but also give me transcendence, mystery, and awe. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, but give me surprise. <laughs> There's a longing for transcendence here. Someone to be a kind of savior. We want the emotional connection, deep desire to be known and loved, but we have so many choices, commitments kind of held at a distance in the event something better is around the corner. And open relationships hold this premise that multiple romantic engagements might bring about some kind of freedom from the restriction of monogamous relationships and that to experience all those different things will somehow result in the eventual landing of the exact person with the exact experience you're looking for and all the while attempting to enjoy a false sense of oneness with multiple different partners. Zach talked a lot about that in week two. I highly recommend going back and looking at it. But remember, our goal here is not to shame, but to demonstrate that God's design is better. 2019 Pew Research, exhaustive research done between cohabitating couples and married couples, found out score after score that married people rate higher in security and faithfulness, acting in each other's best interests, telling the truth, handling money responsibly, alignment and parenting, division of household chores, work-life balance, communication, and yes, sex life, all ranked higher for married people. And then there was this important point in the study that came out. Married adults are also more likely than cohabitators to say they feel closer to their spouse than any other adult. One flesh. But here's a hard truth. We can't find that kind of intimacy we're looking for without sacrifice. The greater the sacrifices you make in your life, the greater the outcomes. You look at somebody like a Michael Jordan. He didn't dabble in basketball, did he? He gave his life over to basketball to be the best player he could be. And at the end, it paid off for him. Anything we want to grow at requires sacrifice. And I want to stress this morning, a lot of what I'm talking about here in relationships and marriage, I'm talking about good-willed relationships. I'm not talking about places where there's violence or abuse or um, chronic infidelity. Those relationships God does not look favorably on those relationships and the church should stand in the gap and the church should help in, in uh, navigating that. But do not stay in, in difficult relationships because of what I'm talking about here. We're talking about goodwill. Living in the hallway of choices, though, in this fear of commitment has provided some alarming statistics further in the creating of stable homes for our children. 
When marriage and commitment is weak and breaks down, the results are difficult and impactful to our communities and our societies as, our, as a whole. It's not just about us. In 2019, that same research, Pew Research did, they released another study that out of 130 countries, the U.S. had the highest population of single-parent households. A quarter of the U.S. children uh, population under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adults. That's three times higher than countries around the world. And sadly, that statistic is not significantly changed in Christian homes and non-Christian homes. And what's also true is women are more likely to live as single parents than men, 9% versus 2%. Jonathan Sachs, NYU professor, said foregoing of marriage has created a whole new form of poverty. In the past, most poverty had its economic causes unemployment, low wages. Today, most poverty has what we call moral causes, family breakdown and non-marital childbearing. The children of unmarried and divorced parents are more likely to require social service through the education system, the healthcare system, the mental health system, social, um, the welfare system, and unfortunately, the criminal justice system. Studies by Ethics and Public Policy Center found that unwed childbearing cost taxpayers, according to one estimate, $112 billion a year. God puts together, humans pull apart. Again, this isn't to shame, this isn't to point fingers, it's just to demonstrate that God has given a provision that is good and should be trusted. Our souls and our bodies are one. We need committed, we need faithful, trusting relationships as a foundation for our biological procreation. Harvard University Press had a funny quote, said, published a book titled, Growing Up with a Single Parent, What Hurts and What Helps. Its authors almost kind of reluctantly conclude, if we were asked to design a system for making sure that children's basic needs were met, we'd probably come up with something quite similar to the two-parent ideal. There are many people here I know that are divorced, that are single, that are bearing the burden, grandparents raising kids, and they're successfully providing loving homes. And let me tell you, this is the place to do it, in the church, where we stand in the chat, where we stand in the gaps, where we help, where we care, where we, where we grow together. We use our programs like divorce care, and we use marriage enrichment programs and um, marriage at risk programs. And so we need to be in each other's lives, supporting each other's lives. But what is the response? I want to put this uh, God's blueprint for, for design for oneness one more time up, the things I ran through in Genesis. And I want us to just look at that. God asks us to receive the provision that he gives us. And what that means is that we see each other in the reality of what we both are, that we are flawed, imperfect people. The Bible asks you to find a person who's seeking Jesus first and willingly, um, and then secondly, to receive them and to receive you in all of your imperfection, knowing and trusting that if you're both seeking Jesus first, the foundation will be solid. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I'm often asked, how do I, you know, maybe it's a, a young adult or someone that's, that's in a relationship, how do I respond to all the pressure to put off marriage and test the waters by cohabitating? How do I respond to that? And I think if you're here this morning, if you're deciding to trust Jesus, you have to respond that it's a matter of foundations. 
Rather than prioritizing, I would just say to someone, rather than prioritizing the physical or domestic aspects of the relationship first, you delay those gratifications to work on the foundational aspects every relationship needs to have. Trust, communication, faithfulness, sacrifice, discipline. Do those in the courting process because if you can get those down right, if you can understand each other there, coming together in intimacy, coming together in, in kind of a domestic way is the easy part. It's the easier part. It might be less convenient pragmatically, but any solid foundation requires that work up front and has long-term benefits. It's not intended to be old-fashioned, and God is not somebody that's a killjoy. He's trying to communicate to us ways in which we build strong foundations for what he intends the family to be. And he takes it serious, and God's word takes it serious. Non-commitment or half-hearted commitment is the language of the world. Real radical commitment is the language of the God of the Bible. I believe the world is failing and it's stumbling to see marriage as a good thing because in many ways, again, the capital C Church isn't presenting marriage with the dignity and respect that it deserves. We're caving among the culture. A Gallup poll found that half of teens, 49% with religious backgrounds, support living together before marriage. Where are they coming up with these ideas? We need to step back and really ask ourselves this question, who should get married? If we see that God is pulling together and we see that man is pulling apart and we see that half-hearted commitment to each other is not resulting in the kind of human flourishing that God had designed, then who should get married? And I went, I'm going to tell you, I had a whole sermon written out, I scrapped like half of it at this point because I started going down the path of trying to answer all the different questions and all the variations and I was convicted, church, that this is where we have to press the reset button. There are two public, there are two, two things I read that really challenged me here. The first one is a newsletter that I get monthly called From Voice of the Martyrs, and it's all about the persecuted church. It tells the true stories of people that have come to Christ despite the fact that it will cost them everything, cost them family, safety, and for many, their lives. Another book I read that I highly recommend is a book called Costly Obedience by Mark Yarhouse. It's a book that chronicles same-sex attracted people who have determined that following Jesus means laying aside their desires and the costs associated with laying those aside. And I found the voices of those who are sacrificing a huge part of their life for the sake of Christ to be humbling and should speak into all of our lives. I wanna share with you a quote from Greg Coles He's featured in the book, Costly Obedience. He's chosen celibacy as an alternative to same-sex attraction. And this is what he says. Listen carefully. It's a harsh quote. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task in their calling to lifelong celibacy. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy, a cross that's too bearable. While gay Christians are expected to deny themselves and their desires for sex and family and intimacy, desires that feel so intrinsically a part of their being, most straight Christians can simply channel those desires towards a single woman or man, get married, have kids, join a country club, attend a welcoming church where everything has been designed with people like them in mind and chase the Jesus festoon brand of the American dream. Maybe the calling to the gay Christian celibacy stands 
in 21st century America, listen to this, is a precious reminder of how desperately, helplessly devoted we were meant to be to the cross of Christ. A reminder that every sacrifice we make will pale in comparison to the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but that it costs all of us too little. Ouch. Jesus to his disciples reminds them the place in their hearts where the need of their savior is to reign supreme. And he contrasts that with earthly relationships. He says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is also here affirming the first commandment to have no other gods before him. Meaning we will make idols out of everything, including our relationships. So let's answer the question, who should get married? And let's take a really hard look at the way we're pursuing our relationships. If marriage in our culture is this place where we're looking for the perfect person, if it's the place where we desire someone to complete us, if it's the place where you put all your hopes and your aspirations, then you are looking to marriage or that perfect relationship to be your savior. You will either stand in the hallway of choices, trying relationship after relationship, or you'll be another statistic in a bad marriage. Paul and Jesus both say hard things about marriage. Jesus in Matthew 19, go read it, reaffirms marriage and its permanence, and he's immediately told that's too hard. Who can do this? Nobody can get married. Paul, in challenging the church in Corinth with regards to marriage, says, I wish you were all that I am. What was Paul? Single and wed to Christ. If Jesus isn't denying the sacrificial element of marriage and the difficulty of marriage, and Paul is saying that we should all be like him, single, what are we being told to do? Steer clear of God's provision for marriage? No, they're saying your heart needs to be wed to Christ first. Jesus' entire message is the absolute hopelessness any of us have to the law without him. Paul is saying to the church, marriage is fine, but it's temporal. It's not going to be when you're dead. Marry yourself to Christ first and let him direct you. I think the call to the church this morning and in our lives is we've got to get back to our first love. I think we've been so influenced in our thinking by the culture that we think we can dabble in and out of love and in and out of commitment that we can have half committed relationships with no permanence hanging out in these hallways full of choices. And I think as the church, we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus enough? If I lost this relationship, can I be content with Jesus? If I gave up the possibility of this relationship as costly obedience chronicles story after story, can I be, can Jesus be enough? Church, if we're making any other relationships ultimate other than Jesus, we can't love and commit the way we're supposed to to each other. He is to be our identity. Why? So that we can rest in our relationships. Only Jesus can give you what you're looking for from others. How does he do this? By committing to you. Jesus came near. Jesus on the cross bound together that which was irrevocably torn apart by us. 
our sin and our rebellion. And I just wonder if we recommitted to our first love, what that would do to reorient our existing relationships. But often we can't be taught grace. I can sit here and try to compel you as much as possible. You have to be shown grace. The heart needs to see it. Grace cuts us to the core when we experience it firsthand. So I wanna share with you a story of grace that had an impact on my life this summer. My mom and dad concluded 57 years of marriage this summer and we lost my dad to cancer in late June. It was, I was able to help my mom with home hospice and uh, we did that for two or three weeks, kind of in the final stages and I can tell you it's hard, it's messy. It was probably one of the most difficult things in my relatively easy life. I know many of you have been through it with your own family members before. But it was hard. Caring for someone in these final stages is hard. Their smells, their diapers, the body doesn't want to shut down gracefully at all. There's writhing, there's labored breathing. It's all evidence that we weren't intended and designed to die, that we fight against that. One particular morning, I came over to get dad ready for the day. He had had a pretty rough night. The bed had been soiled pretty bad. My mom was with him. She was right next to him in bed. I said, Mom, what are you doing? We need to get him up and clean him and change the sheets. And she said, I don't care. I just want to be near him. About a week later, dad would pass, mom holding one hand and me blessed to hold the other. And that was about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. The next morning, me and my brother, who was also there, we went and got some breakfast and came back to bring it to my mom. We came in the house. My mom had worship music playing and she had both her hands in the air. My mom has rheumatoid arthritis, so her little crooked hands were up in the air. And she's praising her savior the very next morning after losing her best friend. Do you, do you see the picture of grace that the heart can't be taught? I experienced it and I promise you it will alter the way that I care for my own wife. Mom came near to dad in all of his messiness. Isn't that the picture of our savior? Further, her faith not only sustained her, it was the source of her transcendent joy. She lost her best friend and ministry partner for 57 years, but in the morning she went to her first love and she worshiped. She loved my dad, she loved that man, and she received him in all of his faults and failures, but she knew marriage was temporal. She finished her vows well. And she looks forward to the eternal rewards of her faithfulness now with her savior, worshiping next to my dad. And I wonder if the world witnessed lives so centered on Jesus, so committed to Jesus, that inside or outside of the bounds of marriage, we were people who came near suffering. We were key people who threw open the doors of our houses to the broken. We were people who chose to worship in the face of suffering rather than become bitter. We're people of radical and sacrificial commitment to Jesus. I wonder if our first love would then become the love of other people as well. I'm gonna give you one last picture of grace. In March, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 26, we have this amazing picture of committed love. Jesus, the night of his betrayal, weeping over what he will have to endure 
want you to follow along with this narrative, Matthew 26, 36 through 43. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. And he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them again sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you do not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and he prayed, saying, Father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink from it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. We see here two pictures of commitment, don't we? We see a picture of Jesus committed to the will of the Father, not my will, but your will, Father. And then he turns around, and he sees the commitment of the disciples, and they're sound asleep. And that's such a picture of us, is it not? Jesus will, he could easily have looked at that and said, half-hearted, committed, I'm out, God, forget it. They're not into it, I'm not into it. That's not what he does. Jesus says in this passage, accepts the cup of wrath that belonged to us in order to draw near us and restore fellowship with, between us and him. Jesus got into that filthy bed with us. And if he's willing to commit to us this way, it should remove the fear and the anxiety we have towards committing to each other. The love of God has given us a secure identity that will anchor us in all our relationships. Hosea 2, 19 through 20, listen to this. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. What a beautiful picture of a God who comes near even when we hold him at arm's length. Rachel Gilson, uh, who's been here, she's taught some, um, author writes this amazing quote, marriage is not promised or preferred. It can't make you straight nor prove that you're committed. It's not the prize for faithfulness nor the source. Jesus Christ is the prize. The Holy Spirit is the source. God is our father, our husband, and our friend. We pull apart, God puts together. Marriage is a provision God gives in terms of his faithfulness to his creation. Jesus came near. Jesus committed to you. And I wonder what is your committed ideal this morning? What's that ideal you hold for as far as you will commit? Because Jesus outcommits us in every way so that we always find the energy and ability in him to be more committed to each other. You can't outcommit Christ. If we set the standard on ourselves, we will always go as far as it serves our own interests and our own happiness. Jesus promises to take you further. To those married, commit to Jesus. To those who are not married this morning, commit to Jesus. To close out these past five weeks, when you wed yourself to Christ, he promises to be enough to get you through that unplanned pregnancy. He promises to be enough when you struggle with porn, with hooking up, when you're tempted to give in to unhealthy relationships. He can be trusted with your deepest desires. Do that by receiving his grace, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your heart through the renewing of our minds with God's word and put yourself 
here in a community of believers all striving towards the truth of God's word. We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We actually have to receive each other in this community and all of our flaws with God's grace driving us. We are playing the long game. First Corinthians, I think it actually, I think it's second Corinthians. I might've messed this up. 4.17 says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. This is temporal, but what is unseen? Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is internal. Paul reminds us these things, these struggles we're going through in the grand scheme of eternity are small. Keep that in mind. Our desires find transcendence in Christ alone. Psalm 36, seven is my closing verse. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of light in your light, life in your light we see light. God puts together, we pull apart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this unbelievable picture of marriage you give us in the church, Lord, where you have wed yourself to us. You have committed yourself to us. You have set the bar of commitment so high, Lord, in yourself and completed that in, our, in yourself so that we can better commit to each other. Lord, let us not leave here frustrated or discouraged this morning, but encouraged, knowing, Lord, that you want to be involved in these relationships. You want to carry us. You want to help us. Lord, help us to sacrifice our own desires, Lord, for the truth and goodness of you and who you are. So many others have, Lord. Let those testimonies speak loud into the church May we be compelled towards each other in love and goodness. We thank you for this series. We thank you for the past five weeks, for the changes that, that uh, people are experiencing, the new perspectives they're seeing and hearing. Pray that we would go away changed, Lord, that we would ultimately be a more loving people, that we'd be welcoming, caring, Lord, but always standing on the truth of your word. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.